Well, hi, everybody. This is Bob Bro. Welcome to the Best Old Time Radio Podcast. This week, we once again are pulling a show from our archives. This is a Boomer Boulevard show that was first broadcast back on the 22nd of May in 2017. Hope you enjoy it. It's half past eight exactly, Mr. Dillon. I better get it out of the safe now. Chester. I'm ready whenever you are, Mr. Dillon. All right, let's go. It's good to see you're back. You all came back. So glad to have you. Hi, this is Bob Bro, and welcome to Boomer Boulevard. Chester and I have been putting together a pretty good show for this week. Pretty good show for this week. Man, it's beautiful outside today. You know, we've had a lot of rain and storms in the Midwest. Really had a bad one this week. A lot of flooding, that sort of thing. But my goodness, today was just beautiful. 70 degrees crystal clear air, fleecy white clouds, and a beautiful azure blue sky. Mm -mm. I do love this time of year. We have what? what, What's on tap, you might wonder. Well, we have an uh, episode of Michael Shane, or The New Adventures of Michael Shane, I believe is actually the name of the show. You remember Michael Shane from back when we were kids, the Dell paperbacks? There was Michael Shane Mysteries, or uh, the Adventures of Michael Shane. I, I remember the, seeing those books a lot. Then we also are, we're going to follow that up with an episode of uh, The Halls of Ivy, a real heartwarming episode. And then we're going to follow that up with a gritty episode of Gunsmoke. We got a great lineup, and we're so glad you came back with us. You guys are looking good. You're looking good. We're going to get started in just a minute, so make yourself comfortable. Sorry I missed the podcast uh, last time. 
I, I do this every two weeks, and I usually introduce them on, on Monday. And uh, I had computer problems. I mean, some serious computer problems. I have a fairly new computer. Boy, computer problems frustrate you. People, a lot of people don't realize that almost everything done in sound these days is done with a computer. We, we have s- software that is like a, um, you know, a sound console. But when you get involved in things like drivers and sound cards and, and uh, devices, oh my goodness, it can get screwed up. And when it gets screwed up, it takes a long time to try to figure out how to fix it. And every time you think you have it fixed, you have to restart your computer and then it comes back on and it works for a while and then it messes up again. And I, Actually, I'm still kind of fighting with that right now, but that's okay. Hey, we're going to start things off tonight with a little radio noir. This week we are starting things off with a show we have not played before. It's The Adventures of Michael Shane. This was first broadcast, I think it was on the Mutual Network, back on the 30th of November in 1949, and this is The Case of the Wandering Fingerprints. Now the name Michael Shane is probably familiar to you. He uh, first came on the scene in a 1939 novel, which was entitled Dividend on Death. The author was Davis Dresser, but he was writing under a pseudonym, Brett Halliday. Dresser went on to write 50 more Shane novels. Then there was another 27 novels written by Robert Terrell, who also used the pseudonym Brett Halliday. And these were published as Dell paperback books. Remember when the paperback books, oh, there was Perry Mason books, and there was Michael Shane books, and there was uh, Mike Hammer books, Mickey Spillane, those uh, pulp paperbacks. Pulp Fiction was so popular in the late 40s and all throughout the 50s. In all, there were 77 novels, over 300 short stories appearing in periodicals, a dozen films, which we'll talk about in a minute, and of course the radio and even a television show. Michael Shane even showed up in a couple comic books and on a Broadway stage. Seven films were produced by 20th Century Fox between 1940 and 1942, and these were considered Pretty good films, and they starred Lloyd Nolan as Michael Shane. Several years later, though, the Shane franchise was picked up by the Producers Releasing Corporation, or PRC, which was a very low-budget production company, and it reduced Shane to B-movie status in five films released during 1946 and 1947. And these featured, as Michael Shane, Hugh Beaumont. Does that name ring a bell to you? (laughs) <laughs> yeah, he was Ward Cleaver. He was Beaver Cleaver's dad back on the Leave it to Beaver show. I don't think I've ever heard that before, Bob. Well, there you go. That's why you listen. The first radio show featuring Mike Shane debuted on Mutual as a West Coast regional show only. So it was only heard on the West Coast. 
and that was back in 1944 in October, and Wally Mayer played the lead. While Halliday got credit for creating Shane, he never actually wrote any of the radio scripts. The show was uh, switched over to a nationwide broadcast between October 1946 and November of 1947. Then it was resurrected on Mutual in July 1948 under the title The New Adventures of Michael Shane, and that's what we're going to hear tonight. And these starred Jeff Chandler in the lead, and that show ran for two years. Actually, there was a third radio show that came along in 1952 on ABC, and it starred Donald Curtis at first and then Robert Sterling. But that show went off the air in July of 1953. Remember Robert Sterling? He played George Kirby on the old Topper television show. So that gives you a little background to Mike Shane, a very well-known detective, and certainly fits into the category of radio noir. Jeff Chandler's pretty good at this. I was never a big Jeff Chandler fan, but he is actually pretty good. I think I liked him better on radio than I liked him in, in films. We're going to talk a little bit about Jeff Chandler on the other side of the show. So here we go, back to November 19, or excuse me, November 1949. Yes, November the 30th. Are you sure about that? Yes, I am. November 30th, 1949. This is the case of the wandering fingerprints on the new adventures of Michael Shane. closed my office door behind her, started walking slowly toward me. Her lips looked warm. Her eyes looked cool. Matter of fact, everything about her looked awfully good to me, except for one thing. That big black gun she was pointing at my belt buckle. New Adventures of Michael Shane, Private Detective. Michael Shane, reckless, red-headed Irishman, is back again in his old haunts in New Orleans. This is your director, Bill Russo, inviting you to listen to another transcribed episode, which we call The Case of the Wandering Fingerprints. Yeah, what'll it be, bud? Huh? Oh. Nothing. I'm just waiting for somebody. Nothing. Look, Mac, you're in a bar. People usually drink in bars. That's what we're in business for. Okay, okay. Give me a give me a bottle of pop. A what? A bottle of pop. That's what I thought you said. Look, Junior, do you mind? No. Uh-uh. Thanks. Mike Shane? Uh, yeah. I'm Ziegler. Bring your drink over to the table here. Okay. Been waiting long? Oh, just a couple of minutes. Well, let's have it. You said on the phone they'd be going. They could be. Well, look, Ziegler, let's not play guessing games. What's your pitch? You and I are going to be partners, Shane. Partners? What do you mean? I've got a little proposition you are going to go for. You know you sound awful sure of yourself. Oh, I am. Well, let's have it. All right. Know anything about electrolysis? Electrolysis? Look, I'm no chemical engineer. I am, sort of. 
Enough of one to have figured out this process. This pro- Look, will you do me a favor? Start at the beginning. All right. I've got a process by which I can transfer fingerprints. You can what? Transfer fingerprints from one place to another. Any place. You're nuts. Am I? It can't be done. Don't take any bets on that, Shane. <laughs> You'd have to pay off. Look, I tell you, it's impossible. It's simple, if you know how. So you dust the prints with a certain chemical powder. You follow me? You take a picture of them, then make an electrolytic plate from the negative. Then dip it in acid. Then you make a mold from liquid rubber. And there you are. Where? With a little rubber stamp of somebody's fingerprint. Look, uh, I don't know anything about this chemical double talk you're giving me, but the whole thing's impossible. You just can't... Like I say, don't take any bets. Now, here's where you figure... We're going to start a little fingerprint service. We, uh, we sign up various clients. They all pay an initiation fee, a large one, as a matter of fact. Uh, just a minute. What do these people get for signing up? Well, it's not so much what they get if they sign up. It's what they get if they don't. Yeah, that's what I thought. The fingerprints turn up in the wrong place. Exactly. Beat it. Now, Shane, that's not a very wise attitude. If you think I'm going to be a front man for a blackmail racket... That's an ugly word, Shane, but that's more or less your job. To locate promising clients for me. I said beat it. You know, you're not being smart at all. Look, maybe you didn't hear me. All right, I'll give you a little time to think it over. But you'll come around. Yeah? Don't you take any bets on that. Oh, you'll come around, all right. Because, you see, you have no choice. And before very long, I think you'll see exactly what I mean. Well, you run into all kinds, I guess. But that day, I'd hit the jackpot when a character named Ziegler told me to meet him in a bar and offered me the charming job of being a front man in a friendly little blackmail setup. I still didn't believe he could transfer fingerprints like he said, but he sure seemed convinced of it. I turned down his deal in a hurry. He implied I was making a large-sized mistake. Then, as I sat at the table watching him leave, I saw him stop at another table near the door. There was a cool-looking brunette sitting there, alone. Ziegler said something to her and jerked his head in my direction. The brunette favored me with a long, cold frown. Then Ziegler left, but the brunette kept dissecting me with her eyes. I got the hunch that she was in the deal some way with Ziegler. Finally, even though the expression on her face was pushing me back, it was just too much there for me to stay away from so I picked up my glass and went over to her table. Hello. The answer is no. What did I ask? What else would you call it? Look, maybe we'd better run through this again from the beginning. Why? Well, maybe we'll come out with a different answer. One that makes a little more sense. The answer will still be no, and that makes plenty of sense to me anyway. Good night, Mr. Shane. sat there with my mouth open while she walked out the door. I was one puzzled guy. What that little conversation was all about was way beyond me. Either I'd missed a few key words here and there, or else the girl was passing up a great career as a mind reader. The bartender came over to the table about then and started picking up the glasses, so I left. It was still early, and I suddenly felt like doing a little of the town. I called a redhead I know and asked her if she was busy. She wasn't, so we took in the town. 
The next morning, feeling chipper as a school kid on Saturday, I tripped down to my office, opened the door, picked up the mail on the floor, and started for my desk. Then I stopped. The chair behind my desk was rocking slowly back and forth, and it was occupied. Hello, Shane. Well, well, Inspector Lefebvre. Inspecting again? Sit down. Yeah, thanks. You uh, decided to move your headquarters here, or is this a social call? Wrong twice. Well, it's early yet. I'll sharpen up. Now, let's see. What could it be this time? Murder? Maybe robbery? Robbery. Arson? Huh? Robbery. Hey, hey look, I, I was kidding. I wasn't. Now, no, no, wait a minute, Lefebvre. What goes? You know an old family named Chartier, Shane? I live in the quarter. Chartier? No, why? Sure. I said no. Haven't paid any social calls on him lately? Say, last night? Look, I told you I don't know him. Why would I be paying him a call? Just trying to give you a break, Shane, but you won't even go halfway. What are you talking about, Lefebvre? I'll tell you. Last night, the Chartier home was broken into. A bunch of jewelry was stolen. What's that got to do with me? I don't know yet. Maybe plenty. We found your fingerprints there. You... My finger... Oh, no. Oh, yes. Well, Inspector, there must be some mistake. My fingerprints couldn't have been there. Shane, fingerprints are sort of a hobby with us. There wasn't a mistake. They're your prints. How come? I, I don't know how come I... Oh, no, it couldn't be. You're pretty hard to convince. Oh, that's not what I meant. I, I meant... Oh, skip it. It'd sound like it was right out of a book. What would... Look, Lefebvre, I, I didn't rob the Chartier home. Give me credit for more brains than that. I had given you credit, Shane. That's what puzzled me. Hey, hey, any idea what time the robbery took place? Between 12 and 1. <laughs> yeah, you know, I'm awfully happy to hear that. Mm-hmm. Alibi? Yeah, yeah, I had a date with a redhead. Yeah. You happen to remember her name? Of course, she's a friend of mine. Patty Battercookin. Patty Battercookin. <laughs> now, Shane. Look, could I make up a name like that? You could. We'll check it. Yeah, I know you will, Inspector. And, uh, keep in touch, huh? Yeah, I know. Don't leave town. Mm hmm. One more thing. What is it? How about a little shot of oil for your chair? Hmm? Well, as usual, the Inspector left me with a lot of questions and no answers. Not even an answer about the squeaky chair. I sat there for quite a while trying to figure out another logical explanation, and I finally gave up. Because as far as I could see, there was only one answer. Ziegler was able to transfer fingerprints. And he'd taken this very quaint way of proving it to me. I spent a little while in a half-hearted search for a can of oil and gave up. I guess I must have been staring unhappily out the window for maybe 15 minutes when I heard a slight noise behind me. I turned around and looked up. There, standing beside my desk, was my friend Ziegler. Hello, Shane. You again. Me again. You, um, you had a visitor a little while ago, didn't you? Inspector Lefevre. So? What did he want, Shane? He just heard a new joke and had to run right down here and tell me. Ah, uh -uh. I think he wanted to tell you about that robbery at the Chartier place. And about your fingerprints being there. Hmm? Okay, okay. I don't know how you did it, but... It's very simple. I told you. My process... Yeah, yeah, your process. Look, you may not realize it, but I was just lucky enough to have an alibi for last night. If I hadn't... Oh, but I do realize it. I know you had an alibi. And that's just the way I wanted it. You what? Certainly. I didn't want you to get into trouble. This time. Look, I don't get it. 
But I don't want to get it. This little game you're playing, it's not going to work. I told you once, I'm not going to be front man for your blackmail pitch, and I still mean it. No, you are hard to convince. Well, I guess I have no other alternative. What do you mean? Oh, just that I'd hate to have the same thing happen to you that happened to Al Metcalf. You have heard of Al Metcalf, haven't you? I've read about him in the papers. He's on trial for murder. That's right. Wait a minute. Are you trying to tell me that... I'm just pointing out that Al could have been a partner of mine. He had the same opportunity you had. But he was difficult about it. He turned me down. Cold. So? They've got a case against him. It's three to two. He'll be found guilty. Oh, yes, yes, indeed. And it's interesting, isn't it, that most of the case against him is his fingerprints at the scene of the crime. You... You mean you deliberate... You... You planted them? I wouldn't want that to happen to you, Shane. So don't keep me waiting any longer. Don't exactly leave me much choice. Right. So you're my boy, Shane. From now on. And don't ever forget it. Inspector Lefevre's already had you on the carpet for robbery. Think of the fun he's going to have when he gets you for murder. Well, it all started when a character named Ziegler offered me a partnership in a fingerprint-planting blackmail corporation. I declined without thanks. So Ziegler promptly planted my fingerprints at the scene of a robbery, thereby bringing Inspector Lefevre into my office for an antisocial call. Inspector left after a few minutes to check my alibi, and then Ziegler dropped in. He told me he could, if necessary, plant my prints at the scene of a murder, like he said he'd already done with a guy named Al Metcalf. Who, as a matter of fact, was facing a murder rap right now? Well, that sort of weakened my opposition. Ziegler pronounced me his boy. He told me to meet him that night in the same bar, and he'd give me my instructions then. After he left, I grabbed the phone and called Inspector Lefevre. Homicide, Lefevre. Shane, Inspector. Yeah. There is a Patty Batterkirk in No, wait a minute. I... And you were with her last night. So you're in the clear on that robbery, I guess. Thanks. I don't... Incidentally, what's Patty so mad at you about? That's not what I called you about, Lefebvre. Look, you're holding a guy named Al Metcalf on a murder rap. You've been reading back issues. Metcalf's been our guest for weeks. Well, it's a bum rap, Inspector. Metcalf's innocent. Really, Shane? I tell you, he's innocent. Shane, I'll make you a little proposition. Yeah, yeah. You run your business, we'll do likewise. Look, I'm trying to tell you, Metcalf's fingerprints were planted at the scene of the murder. Yeah. Oh, I know it sounds phony, but it's the truth. It's a guy named Ziegler who can transfer fingerprints. He transferred mine to the scene of that robbery, and he framed Metcalf for this murder the same way. Shane, you're missing a real good bet. The pulp magazines are just crying for guys who can come up with stuff like that. Okay, okay, but I'm telling you, Lefevre, Metcalf's innocent. And what's more, I'm going to prove it to you. All of which was easier said than done, of course. I went over to the library and spent an hour or so reading up on the Metcalf case in the papers. I copied down the names of most of the people involved, and then I started out. The first guy I tried was a pawnbroker. Sure, sure, no doubt about it. Metcalf's the guy who bought the gun from me. The gun that killed Joey Krause. I checked off the pawnbroker's name and went to see the woman who had been the dead man's landlady. I saw this Al Metcalf go into Mr. Krause's room that night. 
just about five minutes before the shot was fired. And Metcalf was the only visitor Mr. Krause had that night. The next guy I tried was a character named Dixon, who used to be a pal of Krause's. Motive? Sure, Metcalf had a motive. A girl named Bunny. She was Metcalf's girl. Then she got to running around with Krause. So, Metcalf knocked off Krause. But take my word for it. Don't go bothering Bunny, because she's my girl now. Yeah. All the answers were the same. Al Metcalf was guilty. He really had killed Joey Krause. Well, about then, I got on the trail of a very interesting thought. Wild, but interesting. But also about then, my watch said 8 o'clock, and I was due at the bar to meet Ziegler. Well, I didn't have any more time for meditation. But I knew that somehow, some way, I had to find a weak spot in Ziegler. Something that'd give me a club, too. And then I thought of a gag that might just possibly give me that club. It was old, but it could work. Ziegler was sitting at his table waiting for me. As I walked over to him, I could see he didn't look very happy. Sit down, Shane. Yeah, thanks. You're late. A little. I don't like people to be late. What kept you? Look, in case you don't know it, I work for a living. What kept you, Shane? I was conducting a little investigation. Who for? Me. Okay. Shane, you have quite a few things to learn about working for me. Your attitude, for one thing. It'll have to change. But we'll let that go for now. I've got a list of people I'm going to give to you. I want you to contact each of them and sign them up. You can start... Cigarette? Thanks. Here's a light. Help yourself. Thank you. Now... Oh, just one thing. What is it? The girl. What girl? The brunette who was sitting over near the door the last time I talked to you here. Oh, you mean Susan. Do I? What about her? That's what I'm wondering, where she fits in. Well, let's just say that you and she and I will be sort of uh, in business together. I see. Why? Oh, just that after you left, I I went over to her table. Well? Uh, yeah, yeah, I, I thought we might make a little light conversation, but she wasn't having any. Well, she can be difficult. Shane, all this talk about nothing in particular. I somehow get the impression you're trying to stall me. And that would be very foolish, Shane. Yeah. Yeah, Ziegler, I, I've been trying to stall. But it, it hasn't worked, so I'm not going to stall anymore. Okay, give me that list. I'll go to work. He grinned, gave me the list, and left. Yeah, I was right. I wasn't going to stall anymore. Because that stray thought I'd started working on before had come back. And what brought it back was my remembering I'd taken my drink over to Susan's table that time before. Yeah, I was pretty sure I had the answer now. But pretty sure wasn't sure enough. I scooped up my cigarette lighter and went down to police headquarters. I dropped the lighter off in one of the offices so that the boys could admire it. And then I went to see Inspector Lefebvre. Oh, that boy just loved to swing back and forth in desk chairs. He was at it again. Come down to tell me why Patty, what's her name, is mad at you, Shane? I came down to tell you I was wrong, Inspector. About Patty? No, about Al Metcalf. He's guilty, all right. Well, now, that's real good to know. Uh, look, Metcalf's fingerprints were at the scene of the murder, huh? Where were they? Plastered all over the place. Yeah. Now, my fingerprints were at the scene of that robbery at the Chartier House. Mm -hmm. Where were they? 
Why? Believe me, Lefevre, I'm asking you the $64 question. Where were my prints? On a glass. Yeah. Thanks, Lefevre. No charge. Oh, you're leaving? Uh-huh. I got to see a girl named Susan. Need any help? No, this is sort of a private deal. Sure you don't need any help? Sure. Uh, there is one thing, though. What's that? A cherry yours could stand a shot of oil, too. I walked out before he could think of an answer, but I had to hurry. I picked up my lighter and a few interesting facts with it and went back to my office. I sat there for a few minutes trying to figure out how I was going to find Susan. But I needn't have bothered. Because just about then, my office door opened. In came Susan. She closed the door behind her and started walking slowly toward me. Her lips looked warm and her eyes looked cool. Matter of fact, everything about her looked awfully good to me, except for one thing, that big black gun she was pointing at my belt buckle. Well? You just won't take no for an answer, will you, Shane? Let's not start that double talk again. I tried to tell you before it was no deal. Look, do you have to keep pointing that gun at me? And what's no deal? The setup with Ziegler. Set... Oh, I think I get it now. You don't like the idea of anyone else working with you and Ziegler, is that it? Well, look, Susan, I don't like You've the idea... You've got any... a great sense of humor, haven't humor? you? Humor? I don't think it's very funny. Neither do I. Look, maybe maybe I'm stupid, but none of this makes stay sense. Stay where you are. None of that little palaver we had the other night in the bar made sense I either. I said stay where so you are. So you're working with Ziegler. I still don't see why... Oh, you... I'm working with Ziegler. That's a laugh. You're the one who... Hey, hey get back! Too late, sweetheart. You... Let go of me! That's better. That was too big a gun for a lady to be carrying around anyway. Or aren't you, lady? Hey, no. No, not that. Now, now look. Stop it. Stop it, will you? All right. That's better. Now, let's get this thing straightened out. You're not working with Ziegler? Of course not. He... He threatened to plant my fingerprints and implicate me in a murder. Well, I'll be... You too. Oh, sucker, meet her, sucker. You see, I... I could have been implicated, too. It it was all innocent enough, but I could have been made to look bad. Well, we're both in the same boat. Matter of fact, it's sort of nice in here. You can let go of me now. But I still don't see how Ziegler could have gotten that glass with my prints. I thought you took it. Hey, wait a minute. You can let go. That bartender. The one who was so anxious for me to buy a drink. He came over to our table and picked up the glasses right after you left. He gave it to Ziegler. He's our boy. Oh, Shane. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I seem to have a hold of it. Uh, Maybe. uh, Maybe we better wind up this Ziegler business, huh? Yeah. incentive like that, how could I lose? I charged over to the bar, but the bartender I was looking for was off duty. I got his address, though, and went over. Yeah, what's all... Oh, it's you. Yeah, it's me. You go on, beat it, and I'm coming in. Hey, cut it out. What mind, you... Jim. Ziegler. Close the door, Jim. Okay. And Shane, back up against that wall over there. Well, looks like I hit the jackpot, Ziegler. Yes. And it's such a pity, too. Because this machine isn't going to pay off with anything except a slug. Well, there I was. 
I'd figured out the whole deal, but at the moment it looked like there wasn't much future in being a genius. One look at the bartender and Ziegler showed me they didn't think so either. So you figured out my little scheme, eh, Shane? Yeah, lucky me. You know, I thought the mention of the Metcalf case was going to keep you in line. Oh, you pulled that one out of the headlines and tried to make me think you had something to do with it. Seemed to work for a while, anyway. Yeah, until I found out Metcalf really was guilty. We're wasting time, Ziegler. The rest wasn't too tough. I have to admit it was a pretty slick little scheme. Hmm, I thought so. Planting that glass with my prints, and then making me think you'd transferred the prints from one place to another. Ziegler. Oh, uh, incidentally, you were so interested in the general subject of fingerprints, you got me interested in them, too. Yours. Mine? Uh-huh. I got them off my cigarette lighter. Remember, you used it. Clever, clever. And the boys down at headquarters did a little checking for me. I found out a couple of cities are interested in you. Topeka, for one. A bunco charge there, I think. You're always a man for a fast deal, huh? You're very thorough, Shane. I admire it. But... All right, Jim. Yeah. The bartender picked up an empty bottle. Then he held it by the neck, swung it onto the side of the table, and broke it. That left him with a jagged stub in his hand. He started toward me with it. I I don't like broken glass, but there wasn't much I could do. I raised my arm in front of my face. Take care of him, Nice. Well, Shane? <laughs> well, Inspector Lefebvre... How'd you know? When the boys reported to me that you'd brought in some fingerprints belonging to this guy, Ziegler, I thought maybe we'd better find out what was cooking. So we tailed you. Right into the oven. <laughs> Inspector, would you believe it if I told you I was awfully glad to see you? Yeah. Shane. Yeah? It's a good thing you didn't need any help. Huh? No comment. <laughs> Well, that was just about that. The fever told me I was in line for some 500 bucks from Topeka. The reward posted for Ziegler. So I was really on top, and I went busting back to my office to tell Susan to pick up where we left off. Susan. Huh. When I got there, she was gone. I waited, but she didn't come back. I'm still waiting. You know, somewhere along the line, that girl must have read the old fable about getting somebody else to pull hot chestnuts out of the fire for you. Not that I minded that so much, but at least she she might have flipped a few shells my way. Oh, well. There's always Patty Batterkirken, I guess. This is your director, Bill Russo, again. Our story is based on characters created by Brett Halliday. The music is composed and conducted by John Duffy, and Michael Shane is portrayed by Jeff Chandler. The New Adventures of Michael Shane is a Don W. Sharp production, transcribed in Hollywood and distributed exclusively by the Broadcasters Guild. That was The New Adventures of Michael Shane, as originally heard on November the 30th, 1949. The name of that one was The Case of the Wandering Fingerprints. 
In all the various radio shows, Michael Shane was always described as kind of a burly, reckless, red-headed Irishman who used his brain and his brawn equally. You know, one of the things that a lot of people that were big uh, fans of the Shane novels liked was his assistant, Phyllis Hamilton, who gave a lot of comic relief. Unfortunately, though, she did not show up very often in the uh, radio shows as she, as she did in the in the novels. Jeff Chandler, interesting fellow. He was born in Brooklyn in uh, 1918. Let me see, uh, yada, yada, yada. After being discharged from the Army, he moved to Los Angeles in 1945. He had $3,000 in savings, and that was what he was going to use to become a star. Shortly after his arrival, he was involved in a serious car accident on the way to a screen test, and that resulted in a large scar which he wore on his forehead from that point forward. Chandler struggled to find work in Hollywood. He spent all of his savings just about and was just about ready to give up when he got his first job as a radio actor in May of 1946. He went on to appear in episodes of anthology drama series such as Escape and Academy Award Theater. He became well known for playing the lead in Michael Shane. And, of course, we know him very well for playing Mr. Boynton in Our Miss Brooks. He had a fairly successful uh, film career, made a number of movies. He uh, was probably best known for playing Cochise in, uh, what was the name of that movie? Broken Arrow, was that it? I think it was Broken Arrow. Back when they were using typical white guys to play all of these uh, Indian roles. That's the craziest, stupidest, dumbest thing I ever heard. While working on the film Merrill's Marauders in the Philippines in 1961, Chandler injured his back playing baseball with U.S. Army Special Forces soldiers who served as extras on the film. He had injections to deaden the pain, and that enabled him to finish the production. But when he got back home, he entered into a Culver City hospital and had surgery for a spinal disc herniation. There were severe complications, and an artery was damaged, and Chandler began hemorrhaging. Four days later, Chandler had another seven-and-a-half-hour operation, and he was given 55 pints of blood. A third operation followed ten days later, where Chandler received an additional 20 pints of blood. He died on June 17, 1961. The cause of death? Blood infection. Chandler was only 42 years old. Tony Curtis and Gerald Moore were both pallbearers at Chandler's funeral, which was attended by more than 1,500 people. He is buried at Hillside Memorial Cemetery in Culver City, California. Jeff Chandler. And uh, now you know a little bit more about him. Oh, by the way, one thing I forgot to mention was he was an aspiring singer. And he, uh, he actually had several records, I think. In fact, here's a little bit of Jeff Chandler right now. I'll be loving you. I'll be loving you. I'll be loving, I'll be loving, I'll be loving, I'll be loving. I'll be loving you. Always. I'll be loving, I'll be loving you. With a love that's true. Always. I'll be loving, I'll be loving you. When the things you plan need a helping hand, I will understand always, always. Days may change, 
may not be fair Always That's when I'll be there Always I'll be loving, I'll be loving you Not for just an hour Not for just a day I'm afraid that music is not my cup of tea. No, I have to agree with you on that one. But how about this? If you're going to San Francisco Kenzie, Flowers in Your Hair. San Francisco Flowers in Your Hair, I think is the way the record label read. That that was the song that got a whole lot of kids uh, to leave home and head out to the coast and uh, end up in the Haight-Ashbury district of San Francisco. And I was there. Believe me, I was there back in the 60s. I did not live there and I did not have flowers in my hair, but I'm very familiar with the district and the area. And San Francisco was a very, very strange town back in the mid-60s. 
something familiar. Something familiar. Something for everyone. A comedy tonight. Something appealing. Something appalling. Something for everyone. A comedy tonight. Nothing with kings. Nothing with crowns. Bring on the lovers, liars, and clowns. Situation, no complications. Nothing portentous or polite. Ready tomorrow, comedy tonight. <laughs> well, tonight on the Comedy Corner, we don't have hilarity, but we do have funny and we do have heartwarming. We have an episode of The Halls of Ivy, one of the really great shows from the 50s, show with a lot of heart. Started the real-life married couple, Ronald Coleman and Benita Hume. And of course, Coleman plays the president of Ivy College, and Benita Hume plays his wife, a former actress on the British stage. And they just had such wonderful scripts. These were written by Don Quinn the creator of not only The Halls of Ivy, but also most of the uh, scripts on Fibber McGee and Molly. And he was a real wordsmith. Just, I, I would love to have sat and talked to that guy because you can't write like this without having a whole lot of heart. So here we go. This is one of the better episodes too, or I should say one of the best because they're all really good. But this one was originally broadcast on the 10th of February in 1950, and it's entitled The Snowman. You're going to enjoy this. Ladies and gentlemen, the Joseph Schlitz Brewing Company of Milwaukee, Wisconsin, presents The Halls of Ivy, starring Mr. and Mrs. Ronald Coleman. And now, The Halls of Ivy. That surround us here today And we will not forget Though we be far, far away Welcome again to Ivy Ivy College, that is, in the town of Ivy, USA Five people didn't go to bed at all last night here at Ivy Grogan, the campus policeman who was making his rounds, two sophomores and a freshman who were investigating certain mathematical phenomena, uh, such as the odds against drawing to an inside straight, and Dr. William Todd Hunter Hall, the president of Ivy, who's been working at his desk in the study of his home since uh, shortly after dinner yesterday. The chapel bell is striking eight as his wife, the former Victoria Cromwell of the London stage, enters and says... Good morning, Dr. Hall. Good morning. And congratulations. You've just set a new record for going without sleep. Any statement for the press, champ? Uh, yes, I, I'm glad to bring the cup back to Ivy, where it belongs. And I'm looking forward with great confidence to the international match in Brussels next spring. Oh, poor uh, darling. How do you feel? Surprisingly well, if the ability to cope with whimsy on an empty stomach is at all indicative. Do I look awful? Mm. Interesting, rather. One so seldom sees a chartreuse complexion. Bad as that, eh? Well, it's worth it. One seldom sees an annual report as superb as the one I've just finished writing. Here, have a look. Let's see. 
The state of the college. Or in the vernacular, out of the red and over the hump with Hall. Mm. <laughs> you sound enormously set up about it. Yes, I've reason to be. I'd no idea how much I'd accomplished last year until I put it all down in black and white. The endowment fund is up, the building fund is up, enrollments are up. And what are you doing up? Will you be working very much longer this morning? Oh, I'm ready for bed. Well, good. Penny will be right in with your overcoat and hat. My overcoat and hat? Vicky, we've been married long enough for me to make a confession. I never go to bed wearing an overcoat and hat. <laughs> I'm one of those odd fellows who slips between the sheets wearing only pajamas. I know I should have revealed this oh, before, stop. but I... <laughs> I told Penny to bring in our hats and coats because I'm taking you for a walk. A short walk for relaxation, a light breakfast, and then a good long sleep. Excuse then me, you'll be... Mum. Yes, I Penny. brought your things. Good morning, sir. Oh, good morning, Penny. I'll take those. Thank you. You're looking well this morning, Penny. Thank you very kindly, sir. And you're looking... It's a very nice morning for a walk. <laughs> You don't say. Yes, sir. It snowed last night. The first real snow we've had this year, and it's ever so lovely. Makes one want to go out and throw snowballs at top hats. Well, feel free to do so whenever the spirit moves you, Penny. I'm ready, Victoria. Uh, Penny, you didn't by any chance notice a snowman on our front lawn, did you? Should I have, sir? Well, after the first really good snowfall of the year... The students have the custom of building a snowman in front of the home of each faculty member. Uh, you've heard of that, haven't you? No, sir. And the more affection they have for you, the larger the snowman they build. There ain't one on our lawn. <laughs> Allow me, sir. Why, I dare say the snow fell too late for them to have taken advantage of it last night. Which way shall we walk, Toddy? Long faculty row? Yes, that'll do nicely. Be back in half an hour, Penny. That custom the students have... It, it's almost cruel, in oh, a way. Not in the least. I admit it must seem so to those members of the faculty for whom very small snowmen are built, but, but they survive. Uh, Professor Heaslip, for example, has survived years of snowmen not much larger than a Drosophila fruit fly. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> Professor Heaslip is lucky the students built any token of affection on his lawn. If anything, his personality suggests excavation. <laughs> And the report I've just finished makes it more certain than ever he won't get my job. His carefully cultivated friendship with the chairman of the board notwithstanding. It's really a smashing report, Vicky. I raised almost a million dollars in endowments. Built... Built what? What's wrong? Look, there's a snowman in front of Professor Quinn Cannon's house. Oh. The snow came early enough after all. Well, perhaps, perhaps it wasn't the students, Toddy. Professor Quincannon has two children. They may have built it. Children build snowmen, too, you know. Of course, that must be it. I, I mean, after all, there's no reason to suppose the students would build one for Quincannon and overlook me, is there? I, I mean, there's no reason to suppose they're antagonistic to me. I, I mean, I, I don't see why they should be. Do you? No, of course they're not. Um, you were telling me about your smashing report. Toddy, come on. Hmm? Oh, oh, yes, yes, my, um, uh, report. I, well, I suppose I shouldn't have said it's a, a, a smashing report. It, it's not really smashing, but, but it's a darn good one. I believe I may say without immodesty that I'm good at my job. 
After all, a college president must have ability and... and... Keenness of vision? Well, all college presidents have keen vision. A few, in fact, can even see themselves in the White House in 1952. (laughs) (laughs) You know, I, I knew a man once who... I'm listening to what? What are you staring at? A snowman in Professor Howard's front yard. Oh, yes. Oh, I suppose Professor Howard's children must have built one, too. Professor Howard is a bachelor. Oh, yes, of course. I'd forgotten. Well, then, Professor Quincannon's children must have come over from next door. I remember when I was a child, I used to build snowmen all over the place. Couldn't get enough of them. Fairly cover the landscape and build one in front of my house and one next door and then one further down the street. Yes, they, they, they could have come over from next door, couldn't they? Quinn Cannon's children, I mean. Well, of course they could. Yes, they could have jumped over the hedge yes. or, or even come around that way through the gate. Mm-hmm. It's not much more than 30 paces. <laughs> and you know, they're very active youngsters, positively hyperthyroid. Oh, they are. <laughs> Oh, one probably said to the other, let's build one now on old Howard's lawn. Yes, exactly. As a matter of fact, I seem to remember having heard children shouting something like that earlier this morning. Um, you were telling me about your report. Hmm? Your report. I want to hear more about how darn good it is. Oh, I suppose I shouldn't have said it's a darn good report. It's it's not really. It's a fair report. A little more. Vicky, uh, darling, you spend much more time with the students than I do, really. What with your coaching the junior follies and all, you haven't heard any... any grumbling about my administration, have you? None, Toddy, none. Ah. It wasn't a very tall hedge, you know. Quinn Cannon's children could have jumped over it. <laughs> or crashed through. I mean, they're very sturdy. Oh, it's the most natural thing in the world. Yes, Toddy, um... Let's turn down this street. I'm rather tired of Faculty Row. Same old hedges, same old houses. This street seems very charming. Really? You find that row of garbage pails charming? Oh, well, I suppose not. Oh, dear. There's a snowman in front of Professor Warren's house, too. Yes, the young Quincannons have had a quite a busy morning. <laughs> good morning, Doctor. Ah, good morning, Dr. Warren. Good morning, Mrs. Hall. Good morning. Out for a stroll? Yes, we're out for a stroll. Well, I find there's nothing like it on a morning like this for getting rid of the doldrums, don't you? Occasionally. Uh, We were were just admiring the snowman in your front yard. It has a great deal of character. It's a pip, isn't it? I know it's not supposed to be good form for a faculty member to pay any attention to this sort of thing. But when you're 70, as I am, hypocrisy is too much of a strain. I just look at that gleaming monster and glow, Doctor. Glow. Well, I don't blame you. And yet, uh, the custom in some cases can be cruel, don't you think? I mean, the the ones that don't get built. Nope. It's not the custom that's cruel. It's the crushing impact of truth. Some people can't stand up under it at all. You take a president of Ivy we had in 1900. That's before your time. Bessemer was his name. One year, every member of the staff had a snowman except Bessemer. Old Pop Gut Bessemer. (laughs) He resigned a few weeks later, for reasons of health, of course. Oh, that seems very impulsive of him, a little drastic. Well, Ivy's a small school and always has been. Personalities play a much bigger part than they do at some of these giant diploma factories. 
You wouldn't care to continue as president if you knew that students had much rather tie a can to your tail, would you, doctor? Well, now, that, that, that's an interesting way to put it, but uh, no, I suppose not. Why, of course not. You look at it this way, Mrs. Hall. Teaching hardly ever pays off in money. The average prof makes only about 2500 a year, and it hardly ever pays off in glory. I myself can name ten baseball players or burlesque queens, bless them, <laughs> for every teacher you can bring to mind. Well, then, what makes an old party like me, the last of the tobacco-chewing professors, or a man like your husband stay with it? Pride in the job, I suppose. Pride in the job. That and the feeling that maybe we're helping the young savages become not scholars, but men and women, and that they appreciate it. Take that away and what's left? Absolute zero. <laughs> Here I am lecturing the president. Tell you when you arrive at my age and succeed in conning people to regard you as a lovable old gaffer, you get away with murder. <laughs> Care to come in for coffee? Uh, no, 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 thank you. We, we have breakfast waiting at home. That's the wisest decision you've made today. In all the world, no one concocts as nauseating a cup of coffee as I do. <laughs> I'll see you soon, I hope, ma'am. Goodbye. Uh, goodbye, Dr. Warren. He's a pip, isn't he? My snowman. The very word for it, he's a pip. Careful, don't slip on that snow. Uh, by the way, Vicky, uh, did I did I tell you I received a letter from Quesnel University this week? I don't believe you did, Toddy. Why? Well, they hadn't heard of the renewal of my contract as president here at Ivy, and they've made me a very flattering offer. Um, treasurer of the university. <laughs> at almost the same salary I have here. Toddy. Uh, further, and um, oh, perhaps of more importance, it's... Uh, it's a purely administrative job. I wouldn't come into contact with students at all. Not, not, not ever. Toddy! They requested the, the courtesy of a reply this week. It's really a most flattering offer. I, I, I rather think, uh, think I'll accept. Yes, yes, I think it would be best. Surround us here today. Returning to the halls of Ivy, we find a dispirited Dr. Hall strolling in the snow along Faculty Row with Mrs. Hall. You're very quiet, Victoria. Hmm, I know. I'm concentrating. Trying to think of the right thing to say. Oh, you don't have to say anything, my dear. The silent eloquence of the students has left very little unsaid. Toddy, I know how you must feel. In a small way, I've been through it a number of times in the theater, playing for laughter and applause and getting the rustle of programs and a few coughs. You can say to yourself, chin up and good show and carry on, all that. And over it all, you can hear the lorries backing up to the stage door to haul the scenery away. Well, this time, they're going to haul the actor away from the scenery. <laughs> And after I'd convinced myself that I'd given such a sterling performance. <laughs> 
Smashing report, indeed. Would it help if I tried a recital of Kipling's If? It kills them in the provinces. <laughs> <laughs> it's likely to prove lethal here, too. But thank you, my dear, anyway. As organizer and sole member of the William Todd Hunter Hall fan club, you've done some noble work. Oh, Toddy, you don't have to try and laugh it off for me. Get it out of your system, darling. Blow up! Curse the Board of Governors. <laughs> and their promise that I wouldn't have to spend my time wangling emoluments. Curse my folly in believing them. To the devil with all fatheads who kept me away from the students. Bah! <laughs> oh, that was lovely. <laughs> no wonder they feel no affection for me. I'm so seldom with them. Not, not that to know me is to... To love me, you understand. I understand nothing of the sort. I know you very well, and I'm mad about you. How difficult it is to... Oh, thank you, my dear. <laughs> How difficult it is to maintain contact with the student body. One college president I know scheduled a speech to the senior class for the sole purpose of proving that he actually did exist. Oh. And that... That's what's wrong with my report. Toddy, I'm sure it's a superb report. No, no on the contrary. I, I omitted all reference, beyond a few statistics, to the most important part of any school, the students, and what they think about the state of Ivy. I should have found time to teach more courses. Look at Hutchins at Chicago and Conant at Harvard. The students are what make a college, not campus buildings and installations. Diogenes discoursed from a tub. And his students listened, and it was a school. Toddy, look, talking of tubs, I see Professor Heeslip. Well. Through this hedge. He's just leaving his front door. Is there a, a, a snowman on his lawn? Yes, a very small one, which he has just made larger with two handfuls of snow. Oh, oh, he's heard us and stepped back. Well, hello there. Good morning, Skipper. Good morning, fair lady. Good morning. Uh, good morning, he slippers. A nice snowman you have there. Yes, it's a very nice little one. Oh, <laughs> you should have seen it before the sun came up and melted it. Amazing how quickly it went. Uh, this is the warmest part of Faculty Row, you know. Oh, really? <laughs> I found the whole area very cold. Oh, that's a mistake, Skipper. That snowman was inches lower. I, I mean higher, a few minutes ago. It melted down considerably. Also, the boys and girls happen to have chosen a slight dip in the ground on which to build it. Actually, much taller than it looks. Optical illusion, you know. Not that I pay any attention to such things, of course. Of course. I'm happy the students like me as much as they do. Of course. I've often asked myself why. Naturally, I don't court their affection. I'm very strict, but a fair pedagogue, if I say so myself. Perhaps it's the occasional humor with which I sprinkle my lectures. For example? Oh, uh, well, uh, well, well, yesterday, uh, I was discussing uh, nature references in the poetry of the more eminent Victorians, one of whom referred to a dogwood tree in some lyric or other. I asked my students if they knew how to distinguish a dogwood tree, and when they said they didn't, uh, I told them. By its bark. <laughs> 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 well, uh, I must be getting to class. Uh, good morning, Skipper. Good morning, Heaslip. Good morning, fair lady. Good morning. The warmest part of faculty row, indeed. Ah, 
And yet, for the sake of that little snowman, I think I'd almost be willing to change places with his lip. Mm, it'd be a little bit rough on me. What are the boys and girls, as he calls them, see in the man? Oh, it's true he has no enemies, but that's more than balanced by the fact that none of his friends like him. <laughs> well, let's turn back, Toddy. Oh, this is probably one of the last times we'll ever stroll along here, Victoria. It's an attractive little street, isn't it? Yes. I've lived here a long time. And I've loved it here. You see that house across the way? Mm-hmm. I had a furnished room there when I was an instructor. On the top floor. Kitchen privileges. Female visitors permitted only as far as the front parlor. Please turn out the light before leaving the room. Mm, Liberty Hall, wasn't it? <laughs> then when I was appointed assistant professor, I moved over to this side of the street. Sitting room, bedroom and bath. Hot plate permitted. No wild parties. Oh, what exactly was a wild party at Ivy in those days? If I remember correctly, more than two people laughing at the same time. <laughs> uh, but then, then I allowed my appointment to a full professorship to go to my head, and, and I rented that Charles Adams mansion over there. Oh, it wasn't a Charles Adams mansion. It was a wonderful old place to live. Yes, it was, wasn't it? I mean, after I brought you there. It was fairly empty when I occupied it all by myself. It echoed. Empty and unsatisfying, and nothing I did with it. New furniture, new drapes, fresh paint seemed to propitiate the fat little gods of the hearth. Until you offered them me as a human sacrifice, eh? You might very well have been mistaken for a human sacrifice as I handed you down from the taxi that first morning. You were scared to death. Yeah, <laughs> I was. I'd never had a home of my own before. Just hotel rooms and flats and theater dressing rooms. Look, here we are, driver. And, uh, and this is for you. This is our home, Victoria. Oh, William. It's exactly the way I imagined it. All covered with vines and so very peaceful and quiet. And oh, look! My name's on the letterbox. <laughs> I sent a letter from England asking that it can be done. Professor W. Hall and Mrs. Victoria Cromwell Hall. <laughs> oh, thank you, Toddy, for being such a dear love. Is it always as quiet as this? Yes. Nearly always. And empty. I don't see any students. <laughs> One of them has just seen you. <laughs> you seem to have arrived in more ways than one. Come on. Let's go inside. Oh, please take my hand. I, I'm suddenly appalled at how little I know about taking care of a household. Uh, hang on tight, darling. I have shortcomings, too. Promise you'll overlook mine until I've learnt my way around. I promise. It'll be a mutual understanding. Now, what did I do with the key? Can't you find it? Well, I could swear I had it in my hand. I thought I... Oh, I do have it in my hand. Oh, oh, you're as nervous as I am, yes. really, aren't you? I'm <laughs> yes. so glad. I keep on forgetting you're new at this, too. There. No, 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 wait, wait. What? Wait. There's a little ceremony involved here, a very nice one. I'll carry you across the thresholds, like this. 
A snowman? What's a snowman doing in our hallway? Well, don't you see it? The students must have come while we were out walking. Yeah, but they've no right to build one inside the house. And where did they get the snow in May? No, oh, Toddy, it's a snowman. And it isn't May, it's February. Yes, I know, but... We... From wherever you were, dear, come back. You have a snowman. Yes, yeah, but I mean... I mean uh, well, and what? it's the most enormous snowman you've ever seen. Right over there. Oh, oh! Why, it is a snowman. In our front yard. Vicky, I... This is our house, isn't it? Yes, of course it is. Oh, Toddy, you're always losing yourself in your thoughts. Not completely, my darling, because you're always with me. But I... I don't understand this... This Look, there seems to be a note attached to it. Yes, it's addressed to you. Here, what does it say? Oh, one moment. To President Hall. The delay in construction is entirely your fault. If you must work nights, please do so in one of the back rooms and avoid those overlooking the front of the house. <laughs> in that way, the traditional anonymity of the bill... They misspelt anonymity. <laughs> the traditional anonymity of the builders will be preserved. Affectionately, classes of 50 to... Fifty-three, inclusive. Well, now. Hmm. Hmm. Of course, it was probably a good bit larger when they first put it up. (laughs) Oh, this is the warmest part of Faculty Row, you know. Yeah, I know. Could you stand a bit of breakfast and some sleep now? Breakfast, by all means, but no sleep as yet. Remember, I have the report to get out. Another report? The same one, but better. Far better and a great deal more inclusive. Directly after breakfast, I shall want to see the presidents of every class in my study. Yes, and the officers of all student organizations, too. All at once in your little study? Oh, 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 we'll get them in, my dear. We'll get them in. Look at that snowman. It's good packing today. I was curious. I tasted it. Now I know why Schlitz is the beer that made Milwaukee famous. And now, here again is Mr. Ronald Coleman. The campaign to fight heart disease, this country's leading cause of death, is now underway. Diseases of the heart and blood vessels take an annual toll of more than 600,000 men, women, and children. A staggering number indeed. This dreaded menace accounts for one death out of every three, a greater toll of lives than the next five causes of death combined. This year, give generously in support of this wonderful cause. Send your contributions to Heart, care of your local post office. Open your heart, give to fight heart disease. Thank you. Good night. Good night, everyone. We'll be seeing you next week at this time at the Halls of Ivy, starring Mr. and Mrs. Ronald Coleman. The other players were Alan Reed, Gloria Gordon, and Arthur Q. Bryan. Tonight's script was written by Walter Brown Newman and Don Quinn. Our music was composed and conducted by Henry Russell. The Halls of Ivy was created by Don Quinn and directed by Nat Wolfe. 
From the Joseph Schlitz Brewing Company and the Halls of Ivy, our heartiest congratulations to station WTIC in Hartford, Connecticut, on this, their 25th anniversary. Ken Carpenter speaking. That surround us here today And we will not forget Though we be far, far Next, hear We the People over most of these same NBC stations. Sounds like uh, jingle bells playing behind the NBC chime there. Well, that was The Halls of Ivy. The episode was entitled The Snowman, and it was first broadcast on NBC back on the 10th of February in 1950. It's just such a great show. And, of course, we'll play uh, other episodes of Halls of Ivy in the future. And you could go into the archives on our podcasts, and you can listen to a number of, uh, a number of shows. I have uh, just about got the website halfway done. Uh, this is a long story, and I won't, for those of you that are new to the podcast, I won't bore you with it. But if you go to boomerboulevard.com, as of this day today, I think I have 50 shows up of uh, 97 or 98 that we've done, and um, I, I also, you can go in and look for a show by the title, and I'm still working on some of that. Hopefully, I'll have that all done in the next two weeks or so, but if you like Halls of Ivy, we have several episodes on there, and we'll play more and more as the weeks progress. Enjoy the very best in radio. Be sure that you dial and write. Seems like the very best in radio Morning, noon, and night Is from this station Morning, noon, and night NBC Remember back in the 60s, you boomers? All the changes that were taking place? Probably no place was that more obvious than the role of men and women. And we also listened to a lot of comedy albums in the 60s. People like Shelley Berman and Jonathan Winters and Bob Newhart. But there were very few women comedians. But this one is the one that really broke the barrier. And of course, what was her main topic? Usually it was the different attitudes between men and women. I'll, I'll tell you the way the styles are today, I'm glad I'm married. Because if I was single, I could never get married looking like this, you know? And I feel sorry for any single girl today. The styles and the whole society is not for single girls. You know that. Single men, yes. A man, he's single, he's so lucky. A boy on a date, all he has to be is clean and able to pick up the check, he's a winner. You know that. <laughs> or a, a man, a man can call up anybody in the whole world. Do you know that? Hello, I saw your name in the locker room. I thought I'd give you a quick call. <laughs> me. A girl, a girl can't call. Girl, you have to wait for the phone to ring, right? And when you, when you finally go on the date, the girl has to be well-dressed, the face has to look nice, the hair has to be in shape. The, the girl has to be the one that's bright and pretty, intelligent, a, a good sport. Howard Johnson's again, hooray, hooray. Excuse <laughs> me. A girl, a girl, you're 30 years old, you're not married, you're an old maid. 
A man, he's 90 years old, he's not married, he's a catch. It's a whole different thing. <laughs> Along, bring him along. He's 98. Bring him, bring him. He's dead. Bring him. We'll prop him. Just bring him. We'll say he's quiet. I know what I'm speaking about because my mother had two of us at home that weren't, as the expression goes, moving. And I don't ask. And I, I'm from a little town called Larchmont where if you're not married, if you're a girl, and you're over 21, you're better off dead. It's that simple, you know? And I was the last girl in Larchmont. Do you know how that feels? Sitting around my mother's house, 21, 22, 24, having a good time, living, eating candy bars, enjoying myself, but single. And the neighbors would come over and they'd say to my mother, how's Joan, still not married? <laughs> and my mother would say, if she were alive. You know how that hurts? When you're sitting right there? When I was 21, my mother said, only a doctor for you. When I was 22, she said, all right, a lawyer, CPA. 24, she said, well, grab a dentist. 26, she said, anything. If he could make it to the door, he was mine, you know? What do you mean you don't like him? He's intelligent, he found the bell himself. What do you want? Anybody that came to my house was it. Oh, Joan, there's the most attractive young man down here with a mask and a gun. Anything that showed up. Numbers too big to ignore And I know too much to go back and pretend Cause I've heard it all before And I've been down there on the floor No one's ever gonna keep me down again Well, yes, I'm wise But it's wisdom for the pain Yes, I paid the price But look how much It only serves to make me more determined to achieve my final goal And I come back even stronger, not a novice any longer Cause you've deepened the conviction
You wind me and dine me when I was your girl. Promised if I'd be your wife, you'd show me the world. But all I've seen of this old world is a bed and a doctor bill. I'm tearing down your brooder house, cause now I've got the pill. All these years I've stayed at home while you had all your fun. And every year that's gone by, another baby's come. There's gonna be some changes made right here on Nursery Hill. You set this chicken your last time, cause now I've got the pill. This old maternity dress I've got is going in the garbage. The clothes I'm wearing from now on won't pick up so much yardage. Mini skirts, hot pants, and a few little fancy frills. Yeah, I'm making up for all those years since I've got the pill. I'm tired of all your crowing, how you and your hens play. While holding a couple in my arms, another's on the way. This chicken's done for a her nest, and I'm ready to make a deal. And you can't afford to turn it down, cause you know I've got the pill. Cause you've kept it filled The feeling good comes easy now Since I've got the pill It's getting dark, it's roosting time Tonight's too good to be real Oh, but daddy, don't you worry none Cause mama's got the pill Oh, daddy, don't you worry none Cause mama's got the pill Yes, indeedy, things were changing in the 60s. That was a clip from a routine by Joan Rivers, a very popular routine that she used to do. In fact, a very good friend of mine when we lived in New York was in the studio audience, and she was doing a similar routine about, uh, you know, how great it was to be a single guy and how hard it was to be a single girl. And she uh, selected him out of the audience. She was in the audience, but she, she went out and really embarrassed him because she, she said, isn't that right? Isn't that right? Doesn't your mom do that? Doesn't your mom do that? And it, it was really funny to, to watch. She could really make people squirm. And then, of course, that was followed up by Helen Reddy with sort of the uh, theme song, the anthem, if you would, of uh, Women's Lib, and that was I Am Woman, followed up by Loretta Lynn and The Pill. Now. 
you know what that music means. That music means it is time for us to travel back. Travel back to the 1860s. Destination is Dodge City, Kansas, out on the Western Plains. We are going to meet up with Marshal Matt Dillon and walk with him shoulder to shoulder down Front Street, keeping the law, maintaining the order. Along the way, we're going to run into Doc and Chester and Kitty and the whole gang on another episode of Gunsmoke. Well, welcome everybody for this episode of Gunsmoke tonight. We have a, a very serious, very tragic, and somewhat gruesome episode. This is definitely not uh, a program you would hear on Red Rider or on Roy Rogers or on The Cisco Kid. No, this is an adult western. This is Gunsmoke. This one was originally broadcast back on the 28th of February in 1953. And it was repeated, uh, the script was repeated later on, I believe, in, toward the end of the run, 1960. But it is a gritty, gritty episode, and it's entitled The Trojan War. Here it comes. <laughs> Dodge City and in the territory on west, there's just one way to handle the killers and the spoilers, and that's with a U.S. Marshal and the smell of gun smoke. Gun Smoke, starring William Conrad. The story of the violence that moved west with young America. The story of a man who moved with it. Matt Dillon, United States Marshal. It's a cold morning, Mr. Dillon. Yeah, I'm ready for spring, Chester. The tail end of winter always gets on my nerves. Well, it shouldn't be long now. The worst of it's bound to be over. Well, I hope so. Here, let's try Delmonico's here. Huh? <laughs> I'm always ready to eat, Mr. Dillon. Morning, Matt. Chester. Oh, hi, you kitty. Well, how about joining me, huh? Well, thank you. Pull up a chair, Chester. Yes, sir. <laughs> You're up early this morning, Matt. Usually you don't even start breathing till noon. It's too cold to sleep, Kitty. That jail stove always burns itself out about 5 o'clock in the morning. From then on, you just have to... Well, what is it, Matt? Chester, that second table from the window over there. Hmm? Those three men there, do you know them? No, sir, I don't think I do. Well, I do. Ran into them about four years ago out in Arizona Territory. That's the Pueblo gang. Never heard of them coming this far east before. Well. You want some help, Mr. No, just sit tight, Chester. Ma'am? Uh, order me some sausage and buckwheat cakes, Kitty, will you? I'll be right back. I don't want to stay in this town. I don't like it at all. Go ahead, Dick. Morning, boys. 
It's the Parks Brothers, isn't it? Ed and Rio and Chuck Evans. Well, what about it? Easy, Rio. It's Dylan, the U.S. Marshal, the one I told you about. Yeah, I bet you did. What'd you tell him, Chuck? Look, Dylan, our food's getting cold. You got something on your mind or not? Nothing important, Rio. I figure it's quite an honor to have the Pueblo gang in town. I just thought I'd drop over and tell you how I felt about it. And uh, how do you feel? Well, that depends, Ed. Are you boys here on business or pleasure? Does it uh, make a difference? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, it makes a difference. I know your reputation west of here. Half the stage holdups in the last five years from Colorado to the California border can be laid right at your door. As far as I know, you're clean in Dodge City so far. All right, you just keep it that way. You make one move here and your time's up. Right then, you're short and I'll take you, all three of you. You understand? Sure, we understand. We'll think it over, Dylan. Let you know what we decided to do. Rio, you talk too much. Now, see you around, boys. You can put the gun away now, Chester. All right. I'm just going to be ready in case. Uh, Matt, I thought I'd tell you. Those boys are mean. They were in the Texas Trail last night. They're just downright mean. Yeah, I know. What do we do, Mr. Dillon? Run them out of town? Not unless they give us some reason to, Chester. Yes, sir. The law doesn't say you can hang a man because he might steal a horse. Yeah, forget it. Let's eat, huh? Our old train's just about ready to pull out, looks like. Yeah, it's on time. It's three o'clock. Be in St. Louis tomorrow night, Chicago the next day. If the engine holds up. <laughs> oh, they don't break down so much anymore. They're getting them worked out so they're pretty dependable. Yeah, I guess so. You ever get a hankering to take a trip back east, Mr. Dillon, just to see how things has changed? Uh, not me, Chester. I've been on the frontier too long. I'd be lost back there. I wouldn't know how to act. I... I guess man could get his rope kinked over which fork to use or what to hey, do Matt. with it. What? Oh, hi, Will. <laughs> you down watching your competition pull out? There'll be a stagecoach running for a long time to come yet. Railroad's not bothering me any. Well, I'm glad to hear that. Something else is, though. No? Matt, the stage from Buckeye is more than two hours overdue. I'm getting a little worried. Well, why, it's usually late, isn't it? Not on this particular day of the month. What's today particular? Gold dust. Oh. This is the day those placer mines out there always ship their cleanup. Charlie's never missed getting it here at 3 o'clock on time for the eastbound Santa Fe. Not once. Who's riding shotgun, Will? Houston Jack. Well, he's a good man. I doubt if there's any cause to worry. That shipment runs eighty or $100,000 sometimes, Matt. Never been laid before. Oh, Charlie will probably roll in any minute now. Uh, we'll see you later, Will. So long. What do you think, Mr. Dillon? Same as you do, Chester. Let's ride up and meet that stage. I still think I heard a horse went in, Mr. Dillon. Yeah, I thought I heard it, too. We must be an hour and a half from town the way the stage runs. 
He sure is late, all right. I hope late is all it is, Chester. I hope it's not... There. There, there it is again, Mr. Dillon. Yeah, it came from that draw over there, somewhere around that sumac thicket. Come on. Come on. Look, Mr. Dillon. Wheel tracks leading off the trail. Yeah. Running at a dead gallop and out of control, looks like. Well, Chester, there's the stage. I don't see any sign of life, Mr. Dillon. No. Let's take a look. There's tracks all around. Must have been three or four horses here. Yeah, three the way I'm figuring it. I'll lay any odds you want if this is some of the... That's Houston Jack, Mr. Dillon. Yeah. Shot in the back of the head. And they didn't take any chances. They must have ridden up behind the stage and fired without any warning. That's probably what spooked the horses and started the runaway. Yeah, they shot the lead horse. It's an old trick. Charlie's still up here on the box. They got him, too. Uh, that strong box has been forced open. It's empty. All right, Chester, let's cut these horses loose and get them out of the traces, huh? All right, sir. Come on now, boy. Stand it up. It's the same way they used to work it out west. Shoot the guard in the back and let the team run until they're far enough off the trail and then kill the lead horse to stop them. You mean that Pueblo gang? Yeah, who else? Oh! That's a good thing there weren't any passengers. They'd have got the same treatment. All right, there you go, boy. I think there were some passengers, Mr. Dillon. One, at least. What? There's a couple of trunks tied on top and a carpet bag of some kind inside the stage. Here, let's have a look. Well, the only bodies are the guards and the drivers. Say, maybe one of the gang was riding as a passenger. They wouldn't leave trunks behind it. What is it? There's stuff in the carpet bag. Belongs to a woman. There's no woman here? Yeah, I know. Well, uh, and they must have taken her. Yeah. And it's almost dark. Come on, Chester, let's try to pick up their trail. And it's just no use going any farther, Mr. Dillon. It's too dark to tell what we're doing. Well, they were heading toward the river here. Let's take a look through these willows, and if we don't find anything, then we'll ride on back to town. All right, sir. I still keep getting a faint whiff of wood smoke from somewhere. I sure wish we would find the fire. It's getting colder in the heat. Wait a minute. Look over there. Well, I'll swear. It's fire, all right. Or what's left of one, Mr. Dillon. You suppose you're still I don't there? know. Let's leave the horses here and go up on foot, huh? All right, sir. Well, there's nothing moving. No signs of life. <laughs> <laughs> 
They couldn't have left too long ago. That fire would have burned itself out. Well... I'd say we're too late, Mr. Dillon. I think they've gone. Yeah, it looks that way, all right. Yeah, half hour or an hour ago. Made a fast camp, stayed long enough to warm up, and then they went... What was that? I don't know. They're over here, Chester. There's somebody lying on the ground. Help me. Help me, please. Here. Throw some brush on the fire, Chester. Yes, sir. Now it's all right, miss. It is all right now. Three of them robbed the stage, killed the driver and the guard, brought me with them. Anything I can do, Mr. Dillon? No, Chester, I'm afraid not. For, for the love of it. Chester, get some light over here. Grab one of those branches that's caught fire. Oh, Mr. Dillon, just a second. Easy now, ma'am. Just easy now. It's going to be all right. I pleaded with them. Begged them to, to let me go. Here. This help, Penny? Yeah, hold it over here. Mm. Helen. But they wouldn't. They wouldn't let me go. Helen Ford. And when they left, they drew their guns and shot me. Easy now. They shot me. You know who they were? Helen? Helen, can you hear me? One. One named Rio. One called Chuck. They sat on their horses shot me. Then they laughed. She's in awful bad shape, Mr. Dillon. We ought to get her to dock. Shot me. And laughed. But it didn't matter. Not that. It's too late now. Yeah, it's, it's too late. I'll carry her back to Dodge. Get me your saddle blanket, will you, Chester? You knew her, Mr. Dillon? A long time ago. Then things happened the way they do. Later, she married Bill Ford and went out to Colorado. A long time ago. I didn't expect I'd ever see her again. It's a bad thing, Mr. Dillon. Yeah. Yeah. And I'm gonna see him hang for it. Over here, Chester, we'll check the livery stable first. Yes, they could have pulled out, of course, but I'll lay odds they came straight back into town. You won't take long to find out. Now, let's go in. Who's there? 
it? Matt Dillon, is that you, Mr. Kelvin? Oh, yeah, sure is, Marshal. Hey, let me get a lantern lit. I'm just fixing to lock up the stable and go over and grab myself a bite to eat. Running things alone again tonight, and confounded boy didn't show up. I'd like he's not drunk and soon... There. Now, come on, Marshal. I've got a fire going back in the office. Come on back. Set us back. I'd like to, Calvin, but we don't have time. I'm looking for some horses. Well, I got him, Marshal. You want to buy, trade, or hire? Uh, just look. Yeah. There are three fellas staying over at the Dodge house. They've been there about a week. Ed and Rio Parks and Chuck Evans. They're keeping their horses here. Yeah, they are. Right back here. And if I ever saw a ruination of good horse flesh, this is it. There. Take a look there. That one belongs to the oldest Parks boy, Ed, and the one next to it's Rio's. They been road, Mr. Dillon. They been road plenty. Yeah. What time did they come in, Kelvin? Oh, about an hour ago, more or less. Gone since forenoon, just come back a little while ago. Look at that horse. Been rubbed down twice. He's still wet. They didn't say where they'd been, did they? No, not them. They ain't the talking kind. Just left their horses and went on over to the hotel. Wherever they was, though, they must have been riding like the devil himself was chasing them. Well, maybe he was. Uh, thanks, Mr. Keller. Well, yeah. Yeah. Well, I guess there's not much doubt of it, Chester. No, sir. It was them, all right. And I could have stopped it before it happened. A man shouldn't be jailed on suspicion, I figured, just because he might do something wrong. Well... My, everybody has to play it the way he sees it. Only sometimes you can see it a lot plainer afterward. What are we going to do? Go get him, that's all. Well, where do we start looking? The Texas Trail. I one thing, Chester, before we go in. Now, you leave the play on this to me, huh? Just keep me covered, that's all. Mr. Dillon, what was her name before she was married? Marlowe. Helen Marlowe. All right, come on, let's go. Well, it was a real dull evening up until now. Ah, oh, you master. Chester. Hi, Miss Kitty. Kitty. Uh, I'm looking for the Pueblo gang. Have any of them been in here? Why, yeah. One of them's here now. Rio Parks. He's over there at the faro table. Huh? Well, what's wrong, Matt? What happened? Now, they held up the Buckeye stage, killed Charlie and Houston Jack, and a passenger, a woman, Helen Ford. Oh, no. All right, Chester. Oh, be careful, Matt. Yeah, sure, Kitty. Just cover me, Chester. That's all. Yes, you. Are you going to cover me or not? What's the matter, you all a bunch of bikers? Maybe they haven't been out robbing stagecoaches, Rio. What do you mean by that? Maybe they don't make their living by killing women. Dylan, a man could get in trouble shooting off his mouth that way. You're already in trouble. All right, boys, Rio's checking in his hand. The game's over. You can slide out at the end of the table over there. You're under arrest for murder, Rio. 
don't know what you're talking about, Dylan. Murder. A murder that you're going to hang for. Now, where are the other two? Go find them if you want them. I'm going to as soon as I finish with you. I said you're under arrest, Rio, and I get your hands up. Supposing I don't, Dylan. You're not going to make any play. You don't have the guts. Shooting a man in the back is more your line, Rio. You're killing a woman. Now get your hands up. That's better. All right, Chester, get his gun. Seems like it's getting colder, Mr. Dillon. Clear as a bell, though. Look at that moon. Where do you suppose they are? You've been in nearly every saloon on Front Street. I don't know, Chester, but wherever they are, we're going to find them. And you know something, Mr. Dillon? When we do arrest the other two, they're as good as hung with the evidence we got on them. I haven't arrested them yet. Maybe them other two won't be taken as easy as Rio. That's up to them. If they want to surrender, they can. I've never shot a man with his hands up. Chester. Huh? Ben's barbershop over there. The man that he's shaving. It's kind of hard to tell with all that lather on No, it's Ed Parks. Come on. And there's just him and Ben in the shop. I wonder where Chuck Evans is. We'll worry about him later. Just help yourselves to a seat, gentlemen. Be ready for you just as soon as... Oh, evening, Marshal. How you been? I didn't know you were in the habit of shaving outlaws. Uh, well, maybe you're mistaken, Marshal. You just have a seat there and No, I'll... I recognize him, all right. It's Ed Parks. Uh, well, looks like you got the advantage of me, Dylan. No, we can't have that, Ed. Wipe the leather off his face, Ben. Yes, sir. Sure thing, Marshal. Uh, just a second now, Mr. Parks. There. There you are. It's too bad you have to leave that shave half finished, Ed. But they'll give you a free one just before they hang you. What are you talking about, Dylan? Uh, now, gentlemen... Ed, you're under arrest for murder. Get your hands up. Your brother's waiting for you at the jail. You arrested real? What about the hands, Ed? Are you going to put them up? No, dirty kid on me! Huh. That was a fast move for a barber, Ben. I, I knew he had a gun under the towel, Marshal, but of course I couldn't say anything about it. Well, thank you, Ben. And if you'll send the bill for your shaving mug to the stage company, they'll probably take care of it for you. Yes, sir, Mr. Dillon. Chester, spill some water on him. I want him to walk to jail. I bet Chuck Evans got clean away, Mr. Dillon. The word must have got to him. Well, he had to do it awful fast. The clerk said he checked out of the hotel less than ten minutes ago. Kelvin? The light must hurt his eyes. He never keeps a lantern burning. Afraid of fire, maybe. Kelvin? Are you there, Kelvin? Well, yes. Hey, what's wrong? Who is it? 
Matt Dillon. Oh. Strike a light. A man could fall over something in this stable and break his neck. All right, all right. I just don't get excited. I'm used to it myself. I know just where everything is and don't see any point in wasting oil when I... Now, what's on your mind, Marshal? Chuck Evans. Is his horse still here? Yes, indeed. It most certainly is. As a matter of fact, he's back there saddling up right now. Good. I told him it seemed like a full time of night to start out on a trip. I, you can't reason with anybody that treats horses the way that bunch does. No, I guess not. Wait. Well, go on, answering. Uh, yeah. uh, yes? What is it? Give me a hand back here, will you? Tell him yes. All right. I'm coming. What's this all about, Marshal? Nothing to get yourself worked up about. Just stay right here and stay out of the way. Uh-huh. All right, Chester. Yes, sir. You've got a lantern back there at the stall. Yeah. Now, you were right about one thing, Chester. He's trying to leave, Tom. Give me a hand with this, Kelvin. I can't seem to get the... You going somewhere, Chuck? Now, look, look, Dylan. You got nothing on me. Lay off. The Parks boys are in jail. I don't know anything about it, Dylan. You can't prove a thing, and you can't shoot me. I'm not even wearing a gun. It, it, it's hanging there on the saddle horn. Yeah, so I see. If the other boys did something, I, I, I don't know anything about you're it. You're a liar, Chuck. And you're a coward. You've got no call to talk like Shut that. Shut up! Now, you're under arrest. Chester, get his gun off his saddle. Look out, Mr. Dillon. He's got another gun. I'll kill you, Dillon. Say, help me. You're scared, Chuck. You're too scared to shoot straight. So help me. Well, I guess that does it, Chester. Come on. What was it, Marshal? What happened? Evans is dead. The Parks boys are going to hang. You're short three customers, Kelvin. Well, who's going to pay the stable bill? The stable bill? Uh, You got their horses. Sell them. Oh, yeah, I never thought of that. Well, it serves them right. Anybody that would treat a horse the way that punch did, David. Guess it's over, Mr. Dillon. Yeah, it's over, Chester. And it's just as well. This country would be a lot better off with them fellas dead than alive. I guess so. Even the moon looks brighter. Yeah. Mr. Dillon, you're still thinking you should have jailed him on suspicion, aren't you? I'd have half a dodge in jail if I started that. No, Chester, it's the kind of a chance a lawman has to take. Yes, sir. Whether he likes it or not. Yes, sir. But I'm not liking it much right now. In the morning, I'm going to have a talk with the preacher about holding the service for Helen. That's about all I can do for her now. Gunsmoke, under the direction of Norman MacDonald, stars William Conrad as Matt Dillon, U.S. Marshal. Tonight's story was especially written for Gunsmoke by Les Crutchfield, with music composed and conducted by Rex Corey. 
Featured in the cast were Lawrence Dobkin, Tom Tully, Paul Dubov, John Daner, Harry Bartell, and Louise Lewis. Harley Bear is Chester, and Georgia Ellis is Kitty. Gunsmoke is heard by our troops overseas through the facilities of the Armed Forces Radio Service. Join us again next week as Matt Dillon, U.S. Marshal, fights to bring law and order out of the wild violence of the West in Gunsmoke. More Godfrey. Yes, starting tomorrow on most of these same CBS radio stations, there will be more Arthur Godfrey and his gang, presented by CBS Radio for our Sunday listeners. Folks who are regular Arthur Godfrey fans know there's been a 30-minute roundup of Arthur Godfrey time Sundays at the Star's Address. But starting tomorrow, there'll be 30 minutes more with Arthur Godfrey and all the wonderful Arthur Godfrey gang. This is Roy Rowan speaking. And remember, Lionel Barrymore is your host on the Sunday Night Playhouse on the CBS Radio Network. originally heard on the 28th of February back in 1953. That was Gunsmoke. And as always, we'll have another episode of Gunsmoke next time we get together. Folks, that's going to kick things in the head for another week. Don't worry, though. We'll be back in two weeks. We'll do it all over again. We'll have a whole new slate of shows, and we hope that you come along and join us. All right, everybody. This is Bob Bro. I'm so glad you stopped by, and I am so glad you met me. <laughs>